from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has left open the possibility of cooperating with the Taliban on mutual interests. Blinken says the U.S. could work with the new Afghan regime on such areas as counterterrorism and making the region more stable. Conditions for cooperating will depend on the Taliban standing by its promise to govern the country in a far less oppressive manner than it did in the 1990s when women and girls lost basic rights. Congress is moving toward increasing funding for military aircraft engine technology to increase competition among contractors to improve the supply chain. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Program has been experiencing shortages and engine and parts, causing delays in fixing the engines. The Air Force, Marine Corps and Navy are all buying variants of the fifth generation fighter. The House Armed Services Committee is expected to advance a bill today that would repeal the controversial two-year probationary period for, the, for new hires at the Defense Department. The 2022 National Defense Authorization Act includes a provision that would reinstate a one-year probationary period during which federal workers can be fired before their due process rights begin. Federal unions have opposed probationary periods that last longer than one year. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall plans to move the Space Acquisition Directorate into the Space Acquisition and Integration Office. That merger effective immediately could accelerate the pace of fielding new capabilities. Deborah Lee James was the Secretary of the Air Force from 2013 to 2017. Secretary James, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Mimi. Great to be here. And I meant to mention your book. You're the author of the book, Aim High, Chart Your Course and Find Success. Thank you. So why are there two offices for acquisition within the Space Force that have awfully similar names? Why did that happen to begin with? Well, let's back up for just a moment, if we can, Mimi. Congress created the Space Force in the first place because they believed that the Air Force was not giving enough attention and budget and priority to space. And indeed, because there were many offices throughout the Department of Defense complex that focused on space. Why were there so many? Of particular note, they were unhappy with the speed of acquisitions. Well, that was two years ago. Now we're two years later, and they're still rather unhappy because they don't see that enough has changed. So what Frank Kendall is doing, and I think it's a good move, is he is moving out briskly early in his tenure to do what he can within his own control to start to police this up. And so, as you noted, he did recently announce the merger of these two offices, one of which currently sits within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. He's going to merge that with a different office, which currently sits within Headquarters Air Force, and begin to put these various pieces together under one leader. And how would that merger support the Space Force? Well, the idea, of course, is if you have all these disparate parts that are focused on acquisition, if you bring it under one leader, you can get that better focus and hopefully speed it up. Now, I will tell you, the jury is out on that because the reason why the acquisitions process is slow, and by the way, it's not only slow for space, it is slow across the board, is because the system built up over the last, gosh, 50 years or so 
was never built for speed. It was built for, for other things. It was built to ensure that there was competition among companies. It was built to ensure that there was fairness to prevent fraud. It was built to ensure that we would be able to deliver uh, exquisite capabilities in many cases. And all of that adds up to slow. That does not add up to fast. So, you know, they've been revamping the acquisition system across the board, not only for space, but across the board for years now. And the idea is if you put it all under one leader, that leader can take better control and hopefully implement some of the new authorities and get this thing rolling much more quickly. And I understand there's a civilian, there's going to be a civilian leader as well as a military leader. How does that work? Who's in charge of that? Well, there are there will be ultimately, uh, hopefully if this all works out, one team for acquisitions at headquarters Air Force. And that's the piece that Frank Kendall has now been focusing on in recent days. He's putting together that team ultimately under one leader at headquarters Air Force. And then within the field, there will be other people who will actually be the implementers. Again, putting those different field offices together under a singular leader is being worked on as well. And keep in mind, there are pieces here that still reside within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. There are pieces that need to come forward to the Space Force from the Army and the Navy. So there's a lot of moving parts to this whole thing that we now call the Space Force. It's a rather complex reorganization. So what else do you suggest that the Air Force do to work to solve these problems of slow acquisitions and technology being uh, taking too long to field? Well, I think there have been many reports over the years, and um, we know the types of things that need to be done, but the problem is some of those things run against the grain of some of those other important priorities, like competition, like making sure that you have proper oversight to avoid fraud and, and these sorts of things. I think there's been study after study, and certainly as a person who had a career in industry, I can tell you, the more that you empower people at lower levels, the degree to which you put together different levels of review so that you don't review a program 10 times, hopefully you review a program two times. All of these reviews, all of these types of things slow things down. So these are some of the approaches that, again, the DOD has been working in this direction for some number of years. The problem is most of our existing programs that we read about in the news, the ones that are coming to fruition, are the ones that are still uh, managed under sort of the older approaches. There's also new acquisition authorities in law, things like other transaction authorities, rapid prototyping. These are being increasingly used. The problem with these though, is that they do entail more risk and taking on more risk for an important cause sounds really great until you flop. And then until there's a congressional investigation, until you get fired. And so the, the, the problem is the, um, the acquisition workforce still is rather risk averse. And so what Space Force really needs to be doing is trying its hardest to build a culture that will accept more risk and will reward speed. You know, uh, the current Secretary Frank Kendall was previously Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Do you think there will be more innovation in the field of acquisition coming out of the Air Force and uh, the Air Force Department, including Space Force? Well, I certainly hope so. And this is, as you point out, technology acquisition, this is the sweet spot for Secretary Kendall. This is the area that he knows best. So to the extent that he can help speed things up in the Air Force, I think that will be that will be very positive. Of course, he has to also take care that he doesn't exclusively focus on these sorts of areas, which are his sweet spots. 
he needs to be the secretary of the entire Air Force. He has to focus on the people issues, of which there are enormous people challenges out there, the training issues. So he's got to be broad enough to be able to do it all and not simply focus on technology, though technology is terribly important. Do you think that the the situation with the acquisitions, it being slow and, and onerous, do you think that's actually affecting our readiness and our competitiveness with China, Russia? I, th I certainly think it does affect our um, competitiveness. Um, you know, readiness is one of those terms of art, it, you, and I never have liked the way that we've measured readiness, um, at least during my tenure in the Department of Defense and in the Air Force, because I think we're we're always focused on the wrong questions. I always ask the question, ready to do what? Well, we'll leave it at that. Secretary James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming next, using biometric data at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, considering the necessity of that defense practice. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Pentagon used biometric data in Afghanistan to help with counterterrorism efforts. Retinal scans, fingerprints, things like that. Now there are reports that the Taliban may have seized that biometric data. Margaret Hu is professor of law and international affairs at Penn State. She studies cyber surveillance. Margaret, welcome. Thank you. How big a deal is it that the Taliban may have these devices and information? I think that this is tremendously troubling and I think that we need to take this seriously and consider the risks and the data protection moving forward of the biometric data that we collect abroad. So how easy is it then to access and use this biometric data? I mean, does the Taliban really have the technical knowledge to get to it? There's reports that they would not be able to, uh, to break into certain devices that were left behind by the U.S. military in the withdrawal from Afghanistan and would need the assistance of other intelligence experts in order to access the data. And what kind of intelligence experts would do that? Well, I believe that it would require intelligence experts in other countries, such as Pakistan, to collaborate with the Taliban in order to try to access the most sensitive data that was collected by some of these biometric devices. So give me an idea of what exactly this means. You know, it's called biometric cyber surveillance. What is that? You know, DOD calls it identity dominance and says that it's a, a cornerstone of counterterrorism efforts. Set the stage for us. Well, after 9-11, the Department of Defense saw biometric data collection and analysis as one of the key aspects of their counterinsurgency and counterterrorism strategy, that by collecting biometric data, they would be able to make the terrorists and the criminals that were in Afghanistan more seen and then easily, uh, more easily targeted um, for actionable intelligence. And so Biometric cyber surveillance is really the integration of biometric data, such as scanned fingerprints, iris scans, facial recognition technology, even in some instances, the collection of DNA, and integrating that with other databases, terrorist watch lists, other contextual information, in order to conduct military operations and intelligence operations. Well, it seems like a really good idea. I mean, it's it's a great way to identify people on the battlefield. You don't have to worry about all the aliases that 
that people might be using. So what, what's the problem, Mar Margaret? Well, that is exactly the approach of the Department of Defense in the decades following 9-11, that this was going to be logical, practical, feasible, and one of our best efforts to conduct our counterterrorism operations. I think that part of the concern is that these technologies, however, do carry risks, that you can have over-collection, you can have situations where the data is not properly um, being safeguarded against future risks. So, and I think that that's what we're seeing right now, that if you don't build in protections at the front end, you might face tremendous consequences on the back end. All right, well, let's talk about those. Let's talk about the consequences. Let's talk about the implications for, for data privacy. Okay, so for example, if you have mass collection of data and so, in the case of the biometric data collection in Afghanistan, you have um, you know, the national ID card that was rolled out by the Afghan government. You have um, you know, the collection of biometrics for routine day-to-day -day governance operations, such as election security or screening employees for um, you know, uh, work opportunities. And suddenly you have not just a database of potential terrorists or criminals, but you have a database that contains everyone. And so here with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you have the concern that allies, um, individuals based on their ethnicity, um, based on their affiliations, their former work uh, opportunities could be targeted by the Taliban. And so I think it's really critical to think about the integration of these databases and the types of targeting that can be done by um, enemies and um, our foes moving forward. Is there something that can be done at this point um, now that we've, uh, the, the DOD has kind of left behind those devices? Is there something that can be done to, to secure that data? I think that that's a really tough question of what can be done moving forward because once the vulnerabilities are there and once the access is you know achieved by the taliban or others then what you can do to take back the data or try to protect the data is really minimal and so i think that the best defense that we have is planning ahead understanding these consequences foreseeing these types of dangers and i would recommend that the department of defense and others that believe that this is the best way to fight terrorism, consider whether or not we need to have such an expansive collection of the data and the methods of storage, whether or not the ways in which we're storing that data is the most secure method possible. Let's talk a little bit more in the, in the brief time that we've got left about lessons learned, your recommendations um, for the Department of Defense in, in this kind of biometric data. So lessons moving forward, I would include asking questions, is this biometric data collection truly necessary? Do we have any evidence that it's working? Is it efficacious? In the ways in which we're screening the databases, do we know that we are able to screen them with the highest level of accuracy? What are the methods of securing the data? I think that these are all the lessons that we take away from this. All right. Well, Margaret, thanks so much for joining us uh, and talking to us about this. Thank you very much. Bye. Up next, $500 million in reimbursement for the National Guard. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why the Guard's current path could be unsustainable. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back.
The National Guard has been called on to fight wildfires, support COVID-19 missions, and deploy overseas. Congress approved last-minute funding for $500 million to reimburse the Guard for expenses related to securing the Capitol following the January 6 attack. Yet the current path is unsustainable. That's according to Natalie Grogan, a research assistant for the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. Natalie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what challenges has the National Guard uh, faced in, the recent, in recent years? So since 9-11, the National Guard units have been deployed overseas more times than at any point since World War II, which has placed an enormous amount of strain both on the institution of the National Guard and the individuals who make up the Guard. In recent years, of course, the past 18 months, on top of the back-to-back -back overseas deployments, the National Guard has had to step up in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic that hit the U.S. in March of last year. Uh, between 2019 and 2020, there was a 450% increase in mobilization days for the National Guard, which is unprecedented. The missions that the Guard has been undertaking for COVID-19 have included providing testing, providing transportation for vaccines, logistics, and staffing food banks. And that's only the tip of the iceberg for what the Guard has been doing during the pandemic, all of which together have been very, very tough. And you write that uh, a quote, fundamental reassessment of the role of the National Guard is required. Why, isn't, the, isn't their role clear? The National Guard has two roles. They serve a federal mission when they are called up by the president to respond to emergencies throughout the country, as well as overseas deployments when needed. In addition, they serve the governor when they are called up by the state officials to respond to state emergencies, such as wildfires or hurricanes. The problem is that there hasn't been as much of a balance in recent years as there needs to be the National Guard is being expected to function at the level of the active duty military without the same resources. And when you say without the same resources, we're talking about they're not being funded properly, they're not being trained properly? Funding is only part of it. More resources would help part of it. And the emergency funding package by Congress certainly alleviated the immediate, uh, uh, immediate urgency. However, the National Guard is giving more money to the Guard would not solve all of the problems because it, the Guard cannot be in two places at once. When there are emergencies all over the country, they are not able to respond immediately to emergencies that rise in their state. An example is during Hurricane Katrina, 3,000 Louisiana National Guardsmen were deployed to Iraq. And the same thing happened during wildfires in Oregon last year. So do you see that as the biggest risk here if things don't change? That they're just not where they need to be at the time that they need to be there? Sure, they're, they're not where they need to be at the time. And in addition, back-to-back -back deployments place an enormous amount of strain on the readiness of the institution when trainings are not able to happen at the appropriate time, when individuals are not able to balance their civilian job and their National Guard duty, because of course, members of the National Guard serve on a part-time basis and so don't have the same capacity for trainings at the same time as the active duty force. So because of the less training, they're less ready to deploy when they need to, to deploy. And also, I was surprised, Natalie, um, to read that Guard members have gone without pay. H how is that even possible? It's very complicated for the National Guard, especially during the pandemic. There's been an enormous amount of strain financially, both because of all of the missions that the Guard has been required to perform as the emergency funding measure showed, but also when Guard members are called up, 
they can sometimes and in many cases often lose income either temporarily or permanently from their civilian employer, especially when they are being called up multiple times within within the past 18 months. And you've said that the current path is unsustainable. Tell us what happens if, if things don't change. If things don't change, the, the individual serving the National Guard and the institution are at risk. On the individual level, food insecurity among National Guard members is at an all-time high. It's at twice the rate of the national average and has increased dramatically since the start of the pandemic. Institutionally, the National Guard needs a fundamental reassessment of its role, especially as especially as back-to-back -back deployments are what is basing the strain on before COVID. COVID will eventually go away, but the, the strain on the National Guard internationally and domestically is going to have reverberating effects on readiness, training, and ultimately the security of the nation. So tell us your recommendations for Congress, for the DOD, uh, in terms of resources and funding and what, what do they need to do to, to change this? So the National Guard can't be expected to function at the level of the active duty force without the same level of resources. So funding is a really big part of that part of readiness. Additionally, the DOD has an opportunity now to undertake a study of all the mobilizations of the past 20 years for the National Guard and compare their rates, their effectiveness and the consequences for the National Guard units later on. All right, well, Natalie, hopefully things will change. And thank you so much for joining us and, and being on the program. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates and a behind the scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.